0: I think we are ready. Um, I think this one is medicine and healthcare, right? This time? Is that right? Yeah, good. I just need to make sure I get the right talk. You know, you press the wrong button and you'll be in trouble. Um, I want to read something to you first. This is not the recommended way to start a lecture, but... I want you to go and. How many of you have not read any Wendell Berry? That's amazing. How could you get to... (laughs) And if you come from Kentucky, it's unforgivable because he comes from here. Um, Wendell Berry is is a few years older than me, but much wiser. Because shortly after he got tenure in the English faculty, I think at Stanford, but some major university, he realised all those years ago that the university had lost its way. So he actually threw away a tenured career and he went back to his roots in Kentucky. His grandfather and father had grown tobacco. He started growing tobacco and thinking about the world. And of course he also wrote. Uh, He's written brilliant novels, essays, a lovely little book called Life is a Miracle. Uh, He's the only person I know who could write a pro-life book deconstructing the Uh, socio-Darwinists, people like E.O. Wilson, beginning with a a discussion of King Lear. Uh, I just want to read you uh, a couple of paragraphs from the opening chapter of uh, Life is a Miracle because it it will help you to begin thinking about what's at stake in the difference between healthcare and medicine. The problem, uh, and the problem is reductionism, which I'll try and remember to define in a little bit. I forgot to do that yesterday. Uh, The problem of reductionism, as it seems to me, is that we are using the wrong language. The language we use to speak of the world and its creatures, including ourselves, has gained a certain analytical power, along with a lot of expertish pomp, but has lost much of its power to designate what is being designated analysed or, or to convey any respect or care or affection or devotion towards it. As a result, we have a lot of genuinely concerned people calling upon us to save the world, which their language simultaneously reduces to an assemblage of perfectly featureless and dispirited ecosystems, organisms, environments, mechanisms, and the like. It is impossible to prefigure the salvation of the world in the same language with which it has been deconstructed, dismembered. By almost any standard, it seems to me, the reclassification of the world From creature to machine, which is the essence of the post-endarchment project, must involve at least a perilous reduction of moral complexity. So must the shift in our attitude toward the creation from reverence to understanding. So must our shift in our perceived relationship to nature from that of steward to that of absolute owner, manager, and engineer. So must our permutation of holy to holistic at this point, I can only declare myself. I think that the poet and scholar Kathleen Rain was correct in reminding us that life, like holiness, can be known only by being experienced. To experience it is not to figure it out, but to suffer it and rejoice in it as it is. In suffering it and rejoicing in it as it is, we, are, we know we cannot understand it completely. We know, moreover, that we do not wish to have it appropriated by somebody's claim to have understood it. Though we have life, it is beyond us. We do not know how we have it or why. We do not know what is going to happen to it or to us. It is not predictable. Though we can destroy it, we cannot make it. It cannot, except by reduction and grave risk of damage, be controlled. It is, as Blake said, holy. To think otherwise is to enslave life. And to make not humanity, but a few humans, it's predictably inept masters. Now, what Wendell Berry is doing there is contrasting two ways of understanding the world. And the trouble with us as Christian physicians and missionaries, too, is that we actually are in trouble because the enemy has got an outpost in our heads. We think in categories that are not Christian, they're post-indocument categories. A good example so that you get the point of what I'm talking about uh, very quickly. Imagine that your church needs a new person to take care of the money. What sort of person will they look for? An accountant? Who else? A A banker, yes. You see what they're doing? They're looking at techniques. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives you the list of what you should be looking for. Are there any techniques in 1 Timothy 3? None. It's entirely character. Now, the difference is that you can measure accounting ability and banking ability to a degree. You cannot measure character. What happened with the endowment is that we became enamored of measurement and we forgot about quality. Uh, now, medicine goes way back. It has got other characteristics than healthcare, care, which is a post-endowment activity. And so we need to distinguish the two. For the ancient world, to to give a causative account of something, uh, you needed at least four distinct categories uh, in the Aristotelian world. They have fancy names. They're called the material, the formal, the efficient, and the final causes. You don't need to remember those. Just think about a statue, and you have in your head the basic idea. The material cause of a statue, of course, (coughs) is the marble or the bronze or whatever it's made out of. The formal cause is the concept in the sculptor's head of what could be made out of that block of marble. Michelangelo famously would say that he liberated from marble what he saw there. Uh, the efficient cause is the skills and, and tools that the sculptor uses. And the final cause is to beautify the city. Now, only two of those four can be measured at all the material and, to some extent, the efficient. You cannot measure concepts in the sculptor's head, and you cannot measure purpose. Now, what happened with the endarkenment, it began long before um, the so-called Enlightenment. It began really at least by, oh, 1277 is a reasonable time to start it with, the temporary banning of Aristotelian thought. But it was Occam and Descartes and uh, Bacon who really made the move for us between them, moving us from a world that understood the qualities to one that (coughs) wanted the quantities. Facts changed their meaning. When Newton used the word fact, he was probably the last of the medievals in that sense. He still used the the word fact in the old sense. Now, how many medical students have we got here? Quite a lot. Now, when one of your mentors, your attendings or whoever, says, just give me the facts, doctor, what does he mean? He means figures, doesn't he? He needs things that can be measured and seen or appreciated with their senses or their extension in instruments. Now, to Newton, those weren't facts. Uh, The facts for Newton were the moral facts. Because when you think about it carefully, the things that don't change over time are immaterial. Science is always provisional especially in my own area of biochemistry. How long do you think a lecture lasts in biochemistry these days? How many years can you use the same lecture for? If you're at all got any integrity. <laughs> One, perhaps. You know, The rate of change is just incredible. Uh, it's all provisional, and it changes. Now, it's only a few years since we had junk DNA. Hardly anybody uses that term now. Uh, and then we expected there to be more genes in us than everybody else, and lo and behold, rice has three, t- three, many, three times as many genes as we do. Uh, Then we had DNA objectivism, but now we realize that epigenetic factors can make the same gene do different things at different times. And so God is constantly reminding us that he made this. Uh, Those facts are all provisional. Science is building a model to explain what we currently know. And the model is temporary. I used to begin my own honors course in biochemistry by saying atoms don't exist. Um, Now, these are students who just spent four years and a lot of money in those four years on learning about atoms. Um, Now, what I wanted them to understand was that that the atom is a model that explains reality in a way that's close enough to what reality really is uh, to allow you to make a new antibiotic. But it will not explain uh, some of the effects of quantum physics. When one particle goes through Uh, two holes simultaneously, you have lost uh, any sense of that being materially possible. Uh, There is no metaphor for quantum physics and we don't know how to talk without metaphors. I was always amused when my colleagues said, I don't use metaphors. I'd point out to them that the atom is a metaphor. Uh, We have no other way of talking. Um, Mathematics is the only way we can avoid using metaphors. And of course, the maths always works for quantum physics, but we don't know how to talk about it in a way that makes sense to ordinary people. One particle going through two holes? I mean, that's not possible. Um, Yes, it is, uh, in one sense. But, of course, it's not a particle or a wave. And calling it a wavicle doesn't help. I mean, it it is something else, and we don't have a metaphor. Um, It does what you look for. That's a different world. Um, We haven't any means of (coughs) describing it. It, The good part of it, of course, is it it leaves lots of space for prayer. (laughs) When the quantum world conforms to what you're looking for, that's very like prayer, isn't it? But um, so scientific facts are are provisional and they get wiped away. And the rate at which they get wiped away bears very little relationship to how true or false they are. In Ptolemy's model of the universe, um, lasted 1,500 years or more, and yet it was wrong. But it actually was slightly better than Copernicus's model for predicting eclipses. Because Copernicus was not really a modern. He was the last of the medievals. Uh, Kepler was the one who got there. Uh, Copernicus is still Aristotelian in that he wanted perfect circles. And that couldn't be done. Because God didn't want perfect circles. He worked with ellipses. So getting this point across is important. Now, I hope that you've all noticed that all the most important things in your life have no material existence, do they? Love, justice, truth, honor, fidelity. can't live without those, can you? They have no material existence. That means that science has nothing to say about them. What we need from science is a little humility. It's done many great things, but it cannot make sense of what it means to be a human being. And that's where we come in. Uh, Now, medicine has at its roots certain ethics that are different from healthcare, And those of you in the mission field need to think about this fairly carefully. What's the fundamental commitment of medicine in its beginnings? What drove medicine, shall we say, way back in the time of the monasteries, which is where it began? Well, I think you can say it was compassion. The monks saw people suffering. They took them in and did what they could, which wasn't a great deal. They fed them. They watered them. They tended their wounds. They loved them. And they were honored for it. What's the fundamental objective of healthcare? Cure. Hmm? cure. Sorry? Cure. Cure? Not really cure. Uh, no, they'll, they'll trade in some people for other people. It's the most good for the most people. These are utilitarian ethics. Uh, now, the two are incompatible with one another. You have to decide what you're doing. That's not to say there aren't occasions in which public health matters, it does. Uh, but you can't put the two into a seamless garment, it's not possible. I don't use the term healthcare for medicine, I use the term medicine. And you all know that, don't you? you? I hope, especially you see in the developing world. How many of you have had the experience of having someone come to you with a terrible diagnosis which you can make clinically on the spot and you tell them, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to do this, do anything for you, and you're going to die fairly quickly, and then they say thank you. Have you ever had that experience? Yes, of course. Because the uncertainty has been set free. And they're grateful for that. Now they can plan what's left of their life knowing what's going to happen. You have done something which helped. But nothing that did any curing. But it helped them as human beings. We all know we've got to die. Uh, Unfortunately, in North America at the moment, we're in denial of that. Uh, But we need to get over it. um, And then we might make some progress. But medicine is about helping us to do these things. And at the heart of medicine... Well, let me put it in the form of another question. Does any patient have to take your advice? No. no. Absolutely not. So, what on earth are you doing? What is your job? Well, I think your job is to help a patient to decide what they ought to do. Now, is ought a scientific word? No. Ought doesn't occur in scientific language. Neither does, should, or must, or any subjunctive tense. Uh Science is an is-language, usually wrong, uh, but we think it's true. Scientists are naive realists. We think we're discovering something real about the universe, whereas in the arts faculty, truth always has inverted commas around it now. Uh, How they can still take a salary no longer believing in truth always amuses me, but they do. (laughs) Uh, But no, uh, science is naive realism and usually wrong. But we are there to help patients understand what they ought to do. This is where we begin to engage with the modern world and certainly where we begin to attack Darwin and Dawkins. Uh, Unfortunately, most evangelicals go to Genesis 1, which, in my view, is stupid. Um, The right place to start is with two questions. In the beginning, what? Don't don't start any discussion until you've answered question one. What banged? I mean, something did. In other words, there was a material beginning. There's a lovely joke going around in the molecular biology world where the molecular biologists get so arrogant, they say to God, we're making better cells than you are. And God says, that's an interesting concept. We'd better have a cell-making competition next week. (laughs) What can they do? They made a mistake. It's Thursday. So next Thursday, the scientists go to the laboratory, but of course God gets there first. And when they come through the door, he waves his finger and says, no, 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 bring your own dirt. (laughs) (laughs) In the beginning, what is an important question? And don't agree to go any further until that one has been answered. What comes first, mind or material? Now, more and more clever cosmologists And philosophers are saying it's easier to conceive of mind preceding matter than matter preceding mind. Lewis put it very nicely, as he always did, long ago. He said, uh, to think of mind coming from matter is rather like thinking that cabbages, as well as resulting from the laws of botany, give lectures on the subject. (laughs) Um, It's right. That's the problem. Uh, mind preceding matter makes much more sense than matter preceding mind. And of course, for Christians, that ought to have been obvious from the beginning. Does God think? What's the answer? Sure. sure. Well, how else could you describe him? You couldn't say he's a thoughtless God. Now, does God have a brain? No? He's pure spirit. Therefore, brains are only one means of processing thoughts. Uh, There's certainly got to be ways of them coming about without a brain, because God does it. Uh, We don't know where our thoughts come from. Uh, It's going to be the big battle in the next 20 years. It's going to be over neuropharmacology and neuropsychology, not Darwin anymore. That's the next battle. And we better get used to fighting that particular battle now. So, um, don't get sucked into that. The second question, of course, is altruism. There is no Darwinian account of altruism that works. Now, all your children get an account in high school. It's Willie Hamilton's account. uh, And it's sophisticated with a lot of complex statistical mathematics in the original paper. And he got wonderful eulogies when he died in both science and nature. The only problem from my point of view is that it's an explanation that doesn't explain. Uh, It doesn't explain in the sense that for it to work you have to have some creature that cannot be described as a human being. Uh, What he described is a way that you could get group altruism. But what it requires is if you are crossing a bridge and somebody jumps in to commit suicide, you do a kind of genetic calculus. If it's your identical twin, you jump instantly. If it's just a sibling, you think about it for a moment. (laughs) a cousin, a few moments. By the time you get to an outer Mongolian, it's 20 minutes. Now, that produces group altruism in the sense that what Willie Hamilton says and what Dawkins says is that you will die for this amount of genes but not that amount of genes, you know, shared genes. Nobody ever does that kind of calculation. You don't jump in front of the bus to save a child is in the wrong place at the risk of your own life by doing a, a quick assessment of how many shared genes are at stake. Y- you just do it... Uh, it's, not, it's an explanation that doesn't explain. Now, fortunately for us, the man who's done the best deconstruction of Darwin is an atheist. Uh, it's a man called David Stove, S-T-O-V-E, who's Australia's best philosopher ever, who committed suicide when he found he got cancer. <laughs> uh, but not before he'd written a brilliant book called Darwinian Fairy Tales. He says, like me, I also couldn't care less whether how far evolution explains what happened. Uh, it's a very naive reading of Genesis 1 that would care. Um, certainly anybody who denies the evolution of species is simply plain ignorant. Uh, how far he goes, I don't know. That isn't the question that matters at all. The two questions that matter, in the beginning, what? And, of course, the difference between us and the rest of creation is what? We're the only one made in the image of God. Now, does God have any physical image? No. So what's he talking about? Well, it's love, joy, truth, beauty. Uh, there's no evolutionary explanation for that. And that's what we're concerned with. Major in the majors, not the minors. Um, David Stowe does it absolutely brilliantly. The book, since he's an atheist, is written with Benham. Uh, with elegance and panache. Uh, He'll have you chuckling frequently. Um, But he's a hard rationalist and he's appalled at the irrationality of Dawkins et al. Well, Dawkins, he can't believe what Dawkins says and the quotations from Dawkins are brilliant. So there's a book for Christmas for people who care about these things. Um, Now, these two worlds, the world of healthcare and the world of medicine, are that far apart Medicine is covenantal ethics with a concern rooted in real morality and compassion. Healthcare is about the most good for the most people. That's utilitarian ethics. It's not wrong, but it it doesn't fit with medicine, does it? I don't think you can do both at the same time. When I went to Africa for the first time to help a mission group deal with the problem of malnutrition, I realized I had to separate those two my wife, who's a, a do gooder, wanted me to do pediatrics and save lives. <laughs> uh, thinking about why malnutrition persisted in the presence of food was not saving lives, but if one could begin to work out what was at stake, it would. And I think I did. Uh, but that's another talk. Uh, that was the talk that preceded this one. Uh, that's, that was a hard decision to make, but I think it, it needs to be understood. Uh, Jesus, of course, gave me a little help. Have any of you ever noticed what precedes the Sermon on the Mount, the first Beatitude? We, it's always worth reading every verse, you know. There's a verse before, blessed are the poor in spirit. Any of you notice what it says? Jesus. It's a verse especially for doctors, too. Interesting, isn't it? We don't read very carefully. Hmm? Uh, up on the mountain and his disciples came to him and yes oh, no it's before that he says seeing the crowds he went up the mountain the end of chapter four Jesus is healing lots of people now if we had Jesus's abilities to heal would we spend our lives healing we would wouldn't we he didn't Did he do the right thing when he w- when he left the sick people at the bottom and went to preach the sermon on the mount on the mountain Of course he did it was important. And Jesus says one other thing which I wish I understood. He says, I do nothing except what the Father tells me. That's one of the most challenging verses in the New Testament. But certainly on that occasion, he chose not to heal. He chose to teach. And so when I asked myself what gifts God had given me, clearly (coughs) teaching was more important than healing. And it wasn't very long, actually, before the Africans wouldn't even let me see patients. I had to beg to do a clinic. Uh, they, they wanted me to teach. They said, lots of people can do the clinics. Medicine on Frontier can do the clinics. But they can't teach like you can. So that's what they wanted me to do. So they, unlike North Americans, uh, they thought three to six hours was a reasonable amount of time to spend teaching in one go. Uh, I usually managed to get a drink or something to eat in the middle. I'd stop at three hours, and they'd say, why? And i said I need... Some sustenance, they said, fine, we'll feed you, then please go on. Uh, (laughs) In fact, the best summer of my life occurred in 1995. I had been an active Christian by that stage for about the last 15 years or so. I had a 20-year period in the middle when there wouldn't have been enough evidence to convict of being a Christian. I'd become a reductionist. Uh, fascinated by science and problem solving, which happens to lots of doctors and they don't realise what's happening. But that had changed and I'd been brought back by students. And we'd had a project running on the borders of Rwanda uh, for about 10 years in Zaire. So we were there in 1994 when the the Rwanda war blew up. And Sally was on the board of World Relief Canada So she went up to see what was happening. We were actually doing an eight-day walk through the Tumbi Mountains when we heard on our shortwave radio that terrible things were happening in Kigali. Uh, So Sally was actually in Rwanda on the wrong side of the bridge when they closed it, uh, and she didn't come home in September. She always came home a couple of weeks to a month after me. She said, it takes that long to clear up your mess. But um, I knew she wouldn't come this time because our family had grown up and we're all out of the home. And there were seven-year-olds trying to care for four-year-olds. It was total chaos. In fact, she didn't really come home for two years. She came home for two weeks at Christmas, but that was just a fundraise. So in 1995, I went out in the summer to visit. Um, And here was a challenge. I mean, there were medical things to do, but there were lots of people doing those. And she knows I don't suffer from uh, jet lag. So I arrived in Bukavu, and she said, tomorrow I've arranged for you to meet the leaders of half a dozen refugee camps. She was in charge of about half a dozen camps. And uh, I said, you've done what? And she said, you heard. Uh, (laughs) And I said, what am I going to say to them? And she said, you'll do fine. They need you. They won't listen to the people from the peace and reconciliation programs in the Western world. They say they don't understand it. But they'll listen to you. Because of what she'd been doing, because we have been in the area many years years and we were known. Uh, Well, it was the most extraordinary summer of my life. That meeting the next day, after about three hours, we got to the question that really mattered. And it was this. How was it that we who call ourselves Christian ended up killing one another? 80% of Rwandans, you see, would be in church on Sunday morning. And people who killed people, they sat next to one another in church. And after it was all over... They didn't understand what they'd done. Now, of course, we do. it, We don't even bother to repent. It's called abortion. In 50% of the people in church on Sunday, if yours is a random selection of North Americans, have been intimately involved with either directly having an abortion or encouraging it. And we know that one of the greatest supporters of abortion is a white male with teenage daughters, whether he be Christian or not. That's the same phenomenon. Only they were repentant. They wanted <coughs> to understand And fortunately, I had been prepared, and I ended up doing something which I would not have done if I'd been my usual cynical self. Uh, I said, well, I think there are four talks that might help you. I can show you that you're not unique. This has happened many times before. And you're nowhere near as effective a killer as the average liberal. I mean, Starling killed on the average afternoon more than the Spanish Inquisition killed in a century. Uh, I don't think they exceeded a thousand people killed by the the Inquisition during the whole of its existence that comes as a surprise to most of you doesn't it read uh, um, Rodney Stark's book For the Glory of God if you want some really good uh, material on that but uh, they needed that and I could do that because David Jeffrey had taught me it Then I said you, you need to deepen your sense of what salvation is as I find many in North America do. Let me misquote scripture and then you can tell me whether you need to deepen your view as well. Misquoting scripture is a very good teaching tool. So this is a misquotation uh, and a paraphrase to make it worse. Paul says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who have been saved it is the power of God. Now raise your hand if you know what I've done to you. One or two up there and another one there. Do you want a second try? Paul says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who have been saved it is the power of God. What's the mistake? You put your hand up, didn't you? Yes, those who are, who are being lost. No, not quite. For salvation. No. Yes? Sorry? Are being saved, yes. It's present continuous. We do, in fact, tend to think of our salvation as completed in the past. Paul doesn't want us to think that way. How were you saved last week? How do you expect to be saved this week? That's what he wants you to think. Ongoing. Not a dead issue. Uh, We have taught the Africans that salvation is a uh, divine insurance plan that you can put in the bottom drawer of your desk until you die. Jesus says that doing that is to miss out on life. Uh, That's what had happened. Then you needed, I said, to understand the Christian character and then Jewish child-rearing for virtue. And they said, can we arrange that? Now, I should have said, yes, I'll do it four times. I said, sure. I ended up teaching every other day for about six hours for about two months in the refugee camps. I was in tears. They were in tears. And I was the happiest man on earth. The first time in my life. I had done many Christian things, as I suppose many of you have done, even going on missions. But who's in charge of the agenda? You or God? It's usually us, isn't it? I had always decided which good things I would do for God. This was the first summer I gave him carte blanche. And it was the best summer of my life. It's a bit late to learn that. Uh, what was I? Yeah, Too old. 55, you know. Uh Don't make that mistake. That's the different worlds we're talking about. We need to get these two worlds worked out. We need to interact with the world around us using our own language, not the language of the endarkment. How many of you would present the gospel as a series of propositions? In fact, your objective would be to get somebody to acknowledge, A, that God is God, that Jesus is the Son of God, And that he died for your sins and when you confess your sins, he comes into your life and you can sign this document and you're a Christian. Now be honest, how many of you would be content with that? How many would not be content? Because I can ask those who would not be content, why? (laughs) How many would not be content? Now most of you are refusing to commit. (laughs) That means you're refusing to learn. It's got to be one of the two, hasn't it? So... Those who don't raise their hands, I can use as victims, right? Who thinks it would be adequate? Who thinks it would be inadequate? And do you know why? That's the problem, isn't it? And I think that's where the, the two sorts of thinking are separated out. Um, I would put it to you that your conversion... Is not capable of being described in a scientific sense or in a propositional sense. So the presuppositional lists are fine, but, but conversion doesn't fit in this category, does it? Your conversion, can it be picked up and fitted onto someone else? No? Actually, how many of you have listened to this current issue of doctors' digest? Yeah, so it's on there, isn't it? No, I think I've talked about it on there. So there's only two of you who've listened, so I can do it again. Um, <laughs> Conversion is something God does to us. Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus? Nicodemus was, if you like, a professor, in our terms. And he recognized the authority with which Jesus taught. All professors know when somebody else does it better than they do, and they're invariably jealous. Uh, and, well, there's nothing so prima donna-ish as an academic. Um, full of hatred. Um so, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He doesn't want anybody else to know. And the question is, tell me, how do I do it like you do it? What does Jesus say to him? You yeah. yeah, you can't do that. He says, he says something else. Yes, he says you must be born again, but there's another sentence at the same time. You notice where it is? That's there too, but he says this. Unless you are born of the Spirit... You cannot comprehend. Understanding God is something that God has to do to you, not something you do. As Jesus said, "You did not choose me; I chose you." Now, our choice is involved, and we know that. But at the heart of a real conversion, one that's going to last, unlike the ones that you get in 20th-century revivals, uh, which are not for real. I mean, when Billy Graham went to Moscow, everybody ran to the front to get saved, and a couple of years later, they couldn't find any converts. It wasn't understood, and it wasn't what well, it wasn't for real. The real thing doesn't... God doesn't do a half job. Uh, so conversion is something God does to you. Now, Lewis describes this beautifully, being such a, an acute observer. If you read the Surprised by Joy, and Americans, by the way, should start reading after he gets back from the First World War. If you start reading at the beginning of the book, you'll never finish it, because the first bit of it is of no interest to you. It's only about horrible British schools and you don't need to bother with them. Start when he goes to Oxford. Um, Now, he he does one degree and gets a first-class honours degree and he knows the only thing he's fit to be is a professor and there isn't a job. His father's wealthy enough, so he says, do another degree. So he does a second degree in English and he goes to his first tutorial group, small group, and you put smart students together they know who's smart in the group in about 30 seconds. It only needs one sentence, usually. Uh, you know, to a few years back in our medical school, after the first week, it was a competition for third place. The first two places had gone, and everybody knew it. Uh, and they were married to each other. <laughs> uh, and amazingly, they came to Africa with me as, Christian, uh, as non Christians and came back as Christians. And when I asked Mary, what made you become a Christian? She gave sort of response, an intellectual word. She said, The story had so much more explanatory power, (laughs) which is (laughs) actually it's a beautiful description uh, of what conversion does. So Lewis goes to his first um, tutorial and he realizes that the two smartest guys in the group are both Christian. He's an atheist. Now, over the next few weeks, those two guys persuade him that he's a fool. It's really a version of Pascal's wager, which in my version goes like this. If I believe there is a God and there isn't, what do I lose? Not much. They're nice people. It's a decent life. But if I believe there is no God and there is one, I go to hell. That's a bad move. That's Pascal's wager. It doesn't make you a Christian, but it does make theism more acceptable than atheism. And that's what happened to Lewis. He was smart. Now, he's also smart in another sense. He says, OK, that makes me a creature, I'd better pray. So he gets down on his knees for the first time in his life to pray. Now, if you get on your knees and ask God to show you what you look like, what kind of experience is that? Do you get up and sing happy songs afterwards? (laughs) Not really, do you? That comes a little later. The happy song Sunday morning hasn't begun in the right place, has it? Because what he discovered, of course, is sin. He said, I discovered I was a zoo of ambition, a bedlam, of hatred, a hiring a fondled hatred. He was, after all, an academic. <laughs> uh, that's what they do. It was not a happy experience. Looking back, he said, I was picked up and carried, kicking and struggling into the kingdom, perhaps the most unhappy man in England that night. This is the old story. This is the real story. This is the true story. That's real. It happened to Aquinas. It happened to Augustine. Uh, know the stories. Even Charles Taylor, the best living philosopher in Canada has just written a book called The Secular Age, in which he's musing about the need for us to understand that there is a dimension to life that matters that is not explicable by science. Uh, It's important when philosophers are doing that. So Lewis then tries to retreat into deism and it doesn't work. His conversion is worse still. He gets on a bus at the bottom of Headington Hill at Magdalen College just to go the five-minute journey. And he says, I knew I was offered something and it was a free choice. And I chose to say yes. That's all he can say. And his description is just three mixed similes. He says, it was like taking off a suit of clothing, stiff clothing. It was like taking off a suit of armor. It was like being a snowman pushed out into the sun and beginning to melt. It was unpleasant. In retrospect, he realises he said yes to God. He still didn't know what to do with Jesus. That's even worse. He did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. And then he went to watch the wallabies jumping around in the bluebells at Whipsnade Zoo with his brother. And when he got back, he found he did believe in Jesus as the son of God. And he gives you no further explanation because he doesn't know. He spends the rest of his life working out what happened to him in those three weeks and serving us all in the process. Uh, That's a real conversion. Now, most conversion stories, in my view, are fabricated. The real thing is not described. But our churches persuade young people to have a certain type of conversion story, don't they? And many of you have been sucked into doing that. Uh, I was. Uh, It didn't help because it wasn't true. It wasn't the reality. We need to major in the reality. A few years ago now, I was bullied into writing my own story down by Paul Anderson from Minnesota, the University of Minnesota in Duluth, Uh, he had noticed that young men who are assistant professors who (laughs) declare their Christianity openly are less likely to get tenure than if they don't. This is the wonderfully uh, politically correct world in which we live. So he realized that it was important for him to say to Christian professors, be very quiet about your faith until you've got tenure we want you for 30 years, not for three. I've just had to say this to my son, who's an assistant professor at the moment. Uh, He'll get tenure quite quickly, and then he can be open. But in the meantime, just be careful. Uh, So, said Paul, that means those of us who are tenured have a duty to write our faith story down, because when your children go to university, well, those of you who have been in undergraduate recently, did you hear any positive comments about Christianity from a professor? Very few, right? That's the reason, because people like me, I never taught in the first three years. Why should I? There's too much marking. Uh, I, I taught fourth year onwards because I did many years of research first, so I didn't come in as an associate professor. I came in as an associate professor. Never applied for promotion. Why would I? I didn't want any more administration. Uh, so that's the way it was, and he started going around the country looking for people to write their stories down. When he got to me, I said No. Uh, but he twisted my arm and said, why? And I said, I don't want anything to do with a sentimental project. And he made me explain. He said, I'm looking for the real thing. He published a book called Professors Who Believe with 22 professors in the list. And if you want a book to give to students going off to university, it's a good book to give them. Because in the first two years, they will be taught by very smart people who don't believe, apparently. And they'll begin to believe that you can't be smart and believe. So 22 senior professors who do believe is a nice counterbalance, and they stretch from medieval English to to uh, physics, you know, the whole range. The philosophers have a book too, but you only get six in the whole book and 22 of the others, you know, That's philosophers. Uh, so if they're doing philosophers, you want philosophers that you believe. But for ordinary people, that's a good book to give when they go off to university. They can put it on the shelf, and when they feel threatened, they can read it. But real conversion stories are like that. Paul Witts in New York is probably my favourite. He's uh, a Catholic guy who... Uh, T- teaches psychology in New York and he went off from a, you know, an established Catholic home and he lost his faith doing psychology what do you expect is what the family said if you do psychology of course you're going to lose your faith uh, Christians in the Protestant era don't realise that so you shouldn't send your children to psychology it's dangerous not at least until someone like us has proofed them against psychologists we do need Christian psychologists but Anyway, after a year or so, he did his PhD, came back to New York, gave him a job, and he had to teach Psychology 101, Maslow, Rogers, from and that crowd. And how many churches have Maslow on the shelves? Lots of them. It's rubbish. Uh, and after a year or so or two, Paul says he realized that what he was teaching was not intellectually solid. And so he went to the faculties my age, so in those days intellectual integrity was recognized. And he said, I won't teach this stuff anymore. And they said, why? He said, it's second-rate theology. It's not, it's not science. And uh, they said, what will you teach? And he said, well, experimental psychology is real, and so is the psychology of aesthetics. I'll, I'll teach those. So they allowed him to do that and put him in a broom cupboard as a punishment. Uh, But he said, I had no friends in the department of psychology, but suddenly discovered I got friends elsewhere. Because, he said, when I had sorted all this out, I discovered I had become a Christian. That's a beautiful one-line conversion story. And, I mean, his subsequent life makes it quite plain that that's the truth as well. He didn't know where it happened, but actually he's got the first beatitude. Jesus doesn't use the four spiritual laws, does he? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just become poor in spirit, and you've got the kingdom. As Jesus says so, it must be true. (laughs) And of course, what he's talking about is intellectual integrity. Face the truth about who you are, and the kingdom is yours, because I am the source of all truth. You are now committed to truth. You'll get to me, and it's going to take the rest of your life to work out what that means. Ongoing salvation. So that's the old story, and we need to tell our story in their face collect the stories, you all have them in medicine, for which science has no answer. Conversion is one. Uh, the dying of children is another place. The dying of Christians. Diane Combs' lovely story that brought her back to faith. Like me, she lost her faith for 20 years. She became an existentialist, which was a disaster. Uh, but she was head of paediatric oncology at Yale. A lovely woman, single woman, loved kids. She knew all the kids' names ran support groups the parents going to lose their kids but as an existentialist she didn't know what to say to a dying child the only honest thing to say would be this is absurd I'm glad it's you and not me that would be perfectly honest (laughs) but neither nice nor kind and she was a nice kind lady so she solved the problem by not being there Uh, but her mother kept turning up at the back of her head and saying Diane I didn't bring you up to desert people you love you ought to be there and eventually of course she gave in And fortunately, God, being who he is, turned up immediately. Uh, The first child she sat with, a little girl of eight, dying of leukemia. She'd failed in her attempt to treat the leukemia, which saddened her. And the child was semi-conscious, fading away with Diane and the parents and the hospital chaplain sitting by the bed. Just before she died, she had a lucid interval. She sat up in bed and she said, "Mummy, can you see the angels? Can you hear their singing? It's beautiful. She fell back dead. What would you do? That was a tough woman. She didn't give in. It took two more. I won't tell you the whole story. Get the book, A Window on Heaven. Uh, all doctors should have any free copy they see Buy secondhand. You can give it away to other people. Uh, God shows up. We are to collect those stories and bear witness to them. That's all we're required to do, the truth. Tell the truth. Including tell the truth about your own miserable life, right? It's actually better that way. Because they can see your life is miserable. So if you say Jesus is wonderful and uh, the love of Jesus fills my life with sunshine, when it clearly isn't true, that's no witness at all. It's better to say, Yeah, I'm a miserable sod today. And then they say, Well, aren't you a Christian? I say yes. Well it doesn't look much like being a Christian. I say, Not to you, nor to me, but they say, Well, why don't you give it up? I said, Get it right, you've got it all the wrong way around. I don't hold on to my faith. My faith holds on to me. And that is a genuine witness, because I'm clearly holding on in a miserably, curmudgeonly way. Uh, <laughs> God doesn't want it that way, but I have to be obedient for it to change. Uh, that can happen. But don't ever lie on God's behalf. He doesn't need you to. Tell the truth. When your spouse is really getting up your, you know, uh, say so. Not to the spouse. <laughs> it's <not always laughs> it. Uh, There's nothing so silly as telling your spouse everything. (laughs) Tell it to some friend who will say, huh, you feel like that? Well, don't say that to your wife. (laughs) Get over it. So we belong in a world that is realistic. It it, it is as it is really lived. That's why reading good novels is so important. You read someone like oh, uh, Wendell Berry or Walker Percy or Michael O'Brien... And they change you without you knowing how it's done. A great storyteller changes you without you know. It's not explicit. It's implicit. That's why Jesus told so many stories. He didn't teach a great deal of theology, did he? He said, "Here's a story. You go figure." And those stories are still working their way through us. You know, just uh, less than a year ago, uh, John Bayan from Detroit gave me a copy of. Uh, Kenneth Bailey's books on the prodigal son and Jacob. No, I read the prodigal son forever, and suddenly this guy had lived in the Middle East for 45 years, made me rethink the whole thing. Beautiful. Uh, That's what those stories are endlessly capable of, new nuances. And they change you in the process. You can preach a sermon on Paul by sitting at a desk, you can only preach a, a sermon on a parable or a miracle by getting on your knees. That's the difference. So inhabit your own story. And tell the truth about it, including the blackness. <coughs> and God will work on you. Learn the Sermon on the Mount by heart if you want something to get you going in the right direction. And certainly the best thing I ever did in my life. And somebody came up to me today and said, after your visit to our residence program, I did learn the Sermon on the Mount by heart. Thank you. That's what everybody always says. Um, you've got to be rooted in scripture. And then you will have covenantal ethics Because that's our story, and that's where the ethics come from. The story is deep down in your soul, and it will lead you to the right conclusions. Now, the trouble with the moderns, like Peter Singer and his his ilk, is that they believe a very old lie goes right back to Protagoras in the 5th century BC. Man is the summit of things, to say what is that it is, and what is not that it is not. That's their story. That's the story you're going to have to find. That's why Ezekiel Emanuel, Obama, Obama's health uh, guru, who was a physician who teaches ethics, could write a, an article in The Lancet not so very long ago proposing a new approach to ethics without any mention of God. Now, how can that be patient-centered? 80% of your, uh, Americans believe in God, so any ethical system that is patient-centered has to mention God but not Ezekiel Emmanuel. Fancy having a name like that and wanting a system of ethics with no mention of God. (laughs) (laughs) That's frightening. And we are sitting there on our hands doing nothing about it. We need to change that. One of the ways we can do that is very straightforward. I should have finished already. Some of you want to go. Please go if you do. Here's something that every school can do. Students are the ones to lead the way, but they may need you to help them. There's a friend of mine at McGill who realized after listening to me wander on in my usual desultory fashion, uh, giving lectures, he'd invited me, so he had to listen. Uh, at <laughs> McGill, he said, John, you're always going off into rarefaction, but there's something important in what you're saying, and I'm going to do it. And he did something very practical. He's a saint. He volunteered to teach the introduction to clinical skills in McGill. Now, uh, anybody who teaches the introduction to clinical skills is a saint, as far as I'm concerned, uh, because, of course, it's a course in applied hypocrisy, isn't it? Uh, y- you teach them that there are sounds here that sound like this, they can't hear them, but the course <laughs> I- is complete when they say they can. <laughs> uh, And how many of you know why you percuss the chest? I doubt whether any of you know the real reason, but you can come and tell me afterwards if you do. And it's actually very, very useful to uh, missionaries, so I should tell you, shouldn't I? What you're doing when you listen to the chest, all the things in most of the books are rubbish, but you're listening to the differential conduction of sound. That's all. And sound is conducted by fluid and by solids differently. So you put your hand on the chest to feel vocal fremitus. Is your hand a low or a high frequency detector? It's low. What filters out low? Water. So if you put your hand on the chest of somebody in the middle of Africa and you haven't got an x-ray machine and you can feel nothing, you can put in a needle and you will get out fluid. That's the only reason you do it. Uh, Consolidation actually has very good conduction of low frequencies, better than normal. Uh, fluid can occasionally have good conduction of high frequencies so you can sometimes get uh, bronchial breathing over fluid as well but consolidation never cuts out the low frequencies I don't know how I got onto that side issue somebody's going to need that in Africa in the next few weeks or months (laughs) or somewhere else but uh, he taught the introduction to clinical skills but he had a reason he knew what he was going to do and it worked beautifully he What he did was he got the students to identify their own belief system. Now, Montreal is probably the most cosmopolitan city on this continent. So the students there are not a (coughs) cross-section of Quebec. They are a cross-section of the world. So even at Zoroastrians there, you know, in fact, all the minorities are overrepresented in medical school in most cosmopolitan cities. And so there were Hindus and Buddhists and not enough Christians, really. Lots of atheists, for instance, whereas they're not really a blip on the horizon in, in demographic data for the whole population. So he got a histogram. Then he put the Canadian data alongside it and said, is there a mismatch? And of course, it was a huge mismatch. Because in the world's most multicultural country in terms of immigration, still 75 to 80 percent are Christian, if they're anything. They're very thin Christians. They're, oh dear, I must be Christian people, rather than rejoicing in it. But they, insofar <laughs> as they have any ideas about death and, and suffering, they are Judeo-Christian ideas. So he said, yes, uh, I know that. And they all, they're honest. They recognized it. And he said, so this afternoon, I've arranged a special experience for you. What he had done is he'd gone around all his colleagues who were good doctors. And he'd found a Greek Orthodox guy. He'd found a Muslim, a Hindu. Uh, a Jew, a liberal Protestant, himself as an evangelical. Of course, he didn't bother with a liberal uh, because he wanted them to bring their priest, pastor, imam or rabbi. So he got these pairs. And that one afternoon, he got the whole class to rotate around each of these priest-doctor pairings to discuss a case history of one of their people who was going to die it was by far and away the most popular event in the whole of the introductory course because the rubber really hit the road. I was at the local university medical school in St. Louis at lunchtime today talking to 150 students and they've just had a week on cultural competence which was pure multiculturalism so I took it apart for them. What they need to do is this. You will never see a multicultural patient there is no such beast. Uh, if, you don't, if you want it written out, I see that CMDA has got a pamphlet I wrote some years ago that they're selling. I didn't know about that. Uh, <laughs> on the myth of the multicultural patient. But you will never see a multicultural patient. Every patient you see inhabits a particular story of meaning. Your job is to find out what it is, play to its strengths and avoid its weaknesses. Don't evangelize. You're going to have plenty of opportunity during someone's dying Uh, there will come a time when you say, would you be interested in my understanding? And they'll say yes. But it will be what they want. So collect those stories and do it that way. Uh, He actually cheated a little bit. He didn't take his pastor. He took his pastor's wife. It's easy to, uh, to pass off because she was an oncological nurse. So it made kind of sense. But the real point was quite different. She told the story of a woman that she knew well who was had been diagnosed with an incurable cancer and had two children, sort of 9 and 11, who she was not going to see to maturity. And, of course, these preclinical students were sensitive. They were in tears over the story. And when she'd finished, she said, I have to tell you, that woman is me. Then they were really in tears. And they didn't leave for an hour or more. And what an opportunity to evangelize. we need to tell our story as it is, unashamedly. And the argument for doing it is not multiculturalism, it's justice and democracy and even the ACLU says they're interested in that. (laughs) On grounds of justice and democracy, there should really be half the medical schools in North America that are unashamedly pro-life because that's the distribution of pro-life belief in the population. We need to change that. In fact, given the war on conscience that is happening around the world at the moment you all need to start thinking about what you can do about that now go and visit the hippocratic registry uh, we run it but uh, and this time around i've been trying for about 10 years to get people to think about this but the the attacks over the last few years have made a difference so especially in australia where one state has lost the rights of conscience I've been in Jamaica a couple of times in the last few months because of the attacks on rights of conscience there, attacks in Britain, in Canada and the US. And if Obama had had his way, the health law that he passed would make it illegal for you to to refuse to refer for abortion. That's an attack on your conscience. Now, what we need is to sign everybody who understands that up on a list for only one purpose. We're not going to do anything for you All we need is your email address so that when there's an attack on conscience in your political arena, we can press a button and hopefully we'll get 30% of the practicing physicians to agree (coughs) to only do emergency work until that law is rescinded. Or the health service is divided into Hippocratic medicine and whatever, whatever else you want to call the other half. In the University of British Columbia, there are feminists who want to make it impossible to get into medical school unless you agree to do abortions at the end of it. That's an attack on rights of conscience. But we have to be organized. Not only do we need us, physicians, to be talking about these things, we need businessmen and the like. We need to actually know which hospital we want to take over and how we're going to run it. We need to be planning in advance in each environment. Uh, we've closed down the Protestant hospital. and I mean, Baptist in, Ca- in the US doesn't mean anything anymore, does it, nor Methodist. The Catholics still hold on to a degree. You know, I love going to, to teach in the Catholic hospitals because uh, the people who run it, the administrators, the nuns, like what I have to say. Whereas in the Protestant hospitals, uh, or sorry, the secular hospitals, uh, I will get banned in some cases, as I was from Baylor for a little while. Uh, amazing that it should be Baylor. But we've got to get organized. Any questions? I should have finished long ago and I'm rambling on. No questions? One at the back here. Yeah. A little louder, please. Yeah, I'm debating Peter Singer at Wayne State at the end of January. I'm not sure the exact date yet. It will be recorded, I'm sure. And if you live anywhere near, come and pray for me because I'm surely going to need some prayers. So my website will, there's a calendar on my website, and that will, uh, johnpatrick.ca. By the way, if you Google me at the moment, I'm told there's there's a couple of lectures, that are DVDs that can be downloaded. I did a, a talk in Washington for the Family Resource Council on Hippocratic Medicine, what I've just been talking about, and apparently the recording's good, and you can download it, and last week in Edmonton for the Lutherans for Life, I did one on on how we came to accept abortion, what's really at stake. And that's on line two.